baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. It is a day of love. A day of, well, you know, it's the day you play some Michael Bolton. You just played the entire Soul Provider album all the way through. Uh, But first, you listen to Hardline. That's how you start your Valentine's Day. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning, Joe. Love is in the air, and I think it's probably frostbitten, but uh, it's, it's good morning to everybody. Uh, happy Valentine's Day to uh, all of our listeners. Joe, to you and Katie, your fiance. big year for you getting married later this year, so I'm sure you've got a lot to celebrate today. And I want to say happy Valentine's Day to my sweetie, Dan. So uh, yes, hope happy, everybody enjoys the day. Happy Valentine's Day to you guys as well. Yeah, we are seven months and 11 days. But who's counting? But Exactly. I, I just pulled that number out. Joining us first on the Valentine's Day edition of Hardline is Erie County District Attorney John Flynn. John, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning. Nice of you to join us today, John. I hope you have a a good day on this holiday. Uh, Obviously, a big day on Thursday when uh, the grand jury uh, presented a no bill, meaning no indictment for the two police officers who were charged. If you could kind of go back and set the timeline for us, uh, how did uh, the charges get placed? What was your rationale? Obviously, a very controversial decision. Go ahead and tell us the timeline, if you would, please. Absolutely. So, I, I, as you know, back in June, uh, there was, uh, you know, protests going around, uh, you know, all across the city of Buffalo. And there was a particular protest that was occurring, you know, out in front of City Hall. And, uh, you know, the, the reality was was that there really wasn't, at the particular time, there really wasn't that many people who were out in front of City Hall when the incident occurred with Mr. Gugino. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a, uh, <clears throat> I have kind of a drone shot, uh, a photograph that you know shows the entire area of Niagara Square there in front of City Hall, like right before this happened. And you know, Brenda, there was about maybe ten people that were there total. Okay, there. So you know, the, the perception that's out there that. There was this massive protest going on uh, at the time. It's just simply not true. There was, like, hardly anyone there at all, okay? And, you know, unfortunately, it, it, was, uh, it was past the curfew. Uh, you know, the city of Buffalo had established a curfew, uh, rightfully so. And, uh, you know, a, a 75-year-old man by the name of Martin Gugino, you know, walked up onto the steps of City Hall uh, and, you know, confronted the police officers who were just kind of standing there uh, at the time, just, you know, just kind of watching uh, to see what would happen. Uh, You know, at some point, uh, there was an order given from Buffalo Police Headquarters to uh, clear the area. Now, we can debate, you know, back and forth about whether or not that order should have been given, but from my standpoint, it's really really neither here nor there, okay? You know, the order was given— uh, you know, Mr. Gugino was, you know, um, you know, I, I'll be honest, you know, being a pain in the butt, he was violating curfew, okay? 
um, and he approached the line of officers with his cell phone out in his hand, kind of uh, waving it around and recording them. And, you know, the two of the police officers who were kind of in the front line there, um, you know, you saw the video, um, you know, pushed him back. Uh, and, you know, they, they pushed him back hard enough, Brenda, where, you know, he he fell backward and uh, and hit his head, fractured his skull, and was, you know, laying on the ground for uh, – a good period of time before the medics came in. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm now faced with the situation where obviously I respect, um, you know, the law enforcement officers and I respect that they have a duty to do um, in carrying out their lawful orders that they were given to clear the area. <clears throat> the question becomes whether or not they cross the line, okay? You know, whether or not their actions um, – uh, 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 rose to the level of being not only unnecessary, but criminal. Um, and obviously, um, I, I thought that they did. Uh, I thought that there was probable cause that they had committed a crime. I went back and forth a lot on whether or not it was intentional or reckless, okay? And that that's key here because – if it, if it was, in fact, intentional, then there was a quirk in the New York State penal law that made it rise to a felony. Now, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really think that, per se, the action itself was, like, felony material, okay? But, like I said, you know, there's a special provision in the New York State law that says that if an individual victim is 65 years or older and the perpetrator is 10 years younger – and an assault occurs, okay, then it's automatically a felony. So, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, I'm not going to manipulate the law when I make a charge, okay? Um, you know, I, 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 can, I can, you know, in the course of the, the further investigation, in the course of whether or not I believe I got beyond a reasonable doubt going forward, okay, I can evaluate it then. But at the time, you know, it was probable cause to me that, the, the shove was, you know, uh, intentional, um, and therefore it, it rose to a level of felony. So obviously, the felony charge um, was was filed. Once a felony charge is now filed, the next proceeding is the grand jury investigation. And you know, like I do, Joe and Brennan, with all cases, you know, once the initial charge is uh, is completed, okay, the investigation doesn't stop there. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, the investigation you know, really kind of turns up a notch, and it goes now into a grand jury investigation. So that was the next phase. Uh, like I said in my news conference, you know, this really wasn't that complicated of a case, okay? You know, it, really, it really didn't you know, uh, uh, involve like, you know, like a lot of DNA or forensic analysis. You know, it, was, it was kind of simple and straightforward because, again, there was a lot of video out there, and, and, that, and that, that, you know, that, that's the main evidence that I had in the case. But the reason why it took so long, quite frankly, was because you know, grand juries were closed. Um, you know, we, we didn't have any grand juries at all in Erie County due to COVID uh, until like November. And then once November came, I had a bunch of like homicides and rapes, more serious crimes that I had to get in the grand jury that were kind of backed up. So I got all those in first. Um, then the grand jury shut down again due to the second wave of COVID. And then so I'm, I'm, on, I'm on pause again now, okay? And then they allowed the grand juries to open back up a few weeks ago 
And then once the grand jury opened back up a few weeks ago, I then had to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, get my backlog of cases that were out there. Um, and this was one of them, obviously, uh, put it in the grand jury, give it all to the grand jury, okay, which is 20-plus people from society, give them all the evidence, which I did, um, and then say, hey, you make the call here. And they did, and they made the call that it was uh, a no-bill. Right. And, John, I, I imagine you probably felt like you were between a rock and a hard place because, as you point out, this video was viewed uh, – thousands upon thousands of times international attention was brought to uh, Buffalo in front of City Hall and you know I understand what the police were trying to do I'm a big uh, proponent of law enforcement and I really feel like Martin Gugino was almost taunting them in a sense especially when he as you pointed out earlier he had his cell phone in his hand was sort of reaching towards the officer on uh, Gugino's right side but at the same time, uh, the guy was obviously an older gentleman. You could see it just by looking at him, and he appeared to be frail. He had no business doing what he did, but I also think that perhaps they could have taken him by the elbow, the shoulder, and turned him rather than push him. Uh, I, it, it's, a, it's a tough call. It's a gray area. Uh, I don't envy your position in this. But the question then becomes, can Gugino be charged for what he did, and do you plan on filing charges against him? Uh, well, he could have been charged, but the Buffalo Police Department decided not to charge him. So, um, he, and, and Brenda, you're right. As far as I'm concerned, okay, he should have been charged, okay? I mean, he, I mean they're, 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 I, over the course of the summer, I prosecuted um, probably 50 or so um, protester arrests, okay? You know, that, you know that, that, that didn't get much play over, you know, during the summer there, okay? But, you know... I, you know, the, the, the Buffalo Police Department, um, you know, filed over the course of the summer, you know, during these multiple protests, not just, you know, in front of City Hall, but, you know, on, on Bailey Avenue and, you know, in other parts of the city where, where protests occurred. You know, they, they, they probably filed, you know, 50 to 75 what, what, I, what I would call protest-related arrests, whether or not it was, you know, disorderly conduct or uh, curfew violations, uh, whatever they may be. So. Once the Buffalo Police Department, you know, arrested, you know, filed those charges, now they come in my lap, okay? And, you know, here, I, you know, you know, again, these are obviously, you know, violation-level charges. You know, they're no, nothing more than a, than a speeding ticket, quite frankly, okay? So, you know, you know, it depends on who the person was, all right? You know, I, I went through each one individually, you know, and, you know, the ones who were just, you know, um, you know, people who've never been in trouble before and just trying to make a statement. You know, I, I gave them an ACD, um, you know, or whatever. And, and so, you know, you know, Mr. DeGino, um, you know, should have been one of those 50 to 75 people. You're exactly right, Brenda. He should have been um, when, 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 when he approached the officers. Um, the evidence really doesn't show that he was, you know, you know I, I'll use your word, a taunt, okay, but – Definitely with a small T, not a capital T. Okay, he he wasn't like you know egging them on or or like you know um uh you know getting in their face. He was saying to them, here's what he was saying because I, I got it on I'm, I'm recording okay from his cell phone okay. He was saying, why is there a curfew in place? Why am I not allowed to peacefully protest out here? Okay, so his his his, his uh, the the words that he were using to the police officers was more about his constitutional right to protest 
they weren't, you know, hey, you guys are jerks. I hate the police. You know, defund the police. You know, he wasn't egging them on or getting in their face, Brenda. He was just kind of articulating his right to protest and why why is he why does he got to go home at eight o'clock? That, that that was basically what he was saying. So, you know, taunts a little bit of a strong word, but you know, I'll give it to you. You know, with a small T. <laughs> gotcha. You know, John, um, he had the cell phone, and maybe this can't be answered, um, but he had a cell phone. He had videos on that. Was anything from Martin Gugino's phone used in the investigation by the grand jury? Uh, Joe, I, I, you're right. I, I can't. I, I'm prohibited by law from uh, uh, publicly stating what exact evidence was used in the grand jury. But I can tell you this, Joe. Um, Every piece of evidence that I had that was not cumulative, okay, and and I, I say the word cumulative, you know, for for example, like you know, if I if, if during the course of a trial I've got like say three witnesses, okay, and I put the first witness up there on the witness stand, and that witness says, um, you know, you know uh, that uh, you know uh, uh, she, she he or she saw something, okay, and and articulates what that is, okay. And then I bring another witness up, okay, and that person says, yeah, I was standing right next to that person. I saw the same thing. And then I bring a third witness up, and that witness says the same thing. At some point, the, the other lawyer from the other side is going to say to the judge, you know, judge, I object. This is cumulative, okay? You know, I, Flynn just can't keep repeating, repeating what, you know, what, what everyone's saying, the same thing. And so, you know, obviously I, I understand that rule of law, okay? So everything that was not cumulative, okay, um, I put in the grand jury, and I put in front of the grand jury, okay? Uh, and, and again, there was multiple pieces of evidence, okay? And in the course of my investigation, I can say, I can say this. In the course of my investigation, um, before I put the case in the grand jury, I had accumulated a lot of video evidence. So you can kind of, you know— that's about all I can say, and you can read between the lines, okay? <laughs> uh, now, I know you say you stand by the charges, but do you do you see where the grand jury came to their conclusion in this situation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 totally, uh, I totally respect the process. You know, I'll, I'll go Coach McDermott on it, you know. Yeah, yeah, I respect the process, okay? <laughs> I, 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 I get that. Um, you know, that, that's the way it should work, okay? You know, the way it should work is that, you know, I, as a, as a DA, you know, I don't have the sole power as, you know, prosecutor, judge, and jury, okay? Every, everyone in society has a different role, um, and, and every, every, every person in the criminal justice system, uh, you know, has a different, uh, like I said, role to play. And whenever there's a felony charge, uh, that is filed, okay? And again, like you said, Joe, I, I do stand by that, okay? Um, every time there's a felony charge, it's filed, all right? I do not get the final say. I, I believe that there was probable cause to file the initial charge, okay? And so that, that's really as far as my authority goes, okay? Once, that, once I make that decision, then the case goes before society, all right? And, and, and society now, uh, in our criminal justice system for felonies, okay, there's two roles for society, okay? Society... Their first role is those who are chosen from the grand jury, and they have to screen all felonies. And then if they do screen it positively, okay, and it comes out of the grand jury with a charge, okay, 
then the second part of society is the actual jurors, okay, at a trial. So, you know, this was the first part of the process, and I, like I said, I, I, I totally respect the decision, and I totally respect the process. John, uh, Tom Burton represented one of the officers, and he said in addition to the viral video, uh, the grand jury was shown some body cam footage of the incident that showed a different side to the uh, of the story. Do you think that we'll see that eventually? Will the public have access to that? Well, f- first of all, M- Mr. Burton is speculating on that, okay, because Mr. Burton does not know what was put in the grand jury, okay? M- Mr. Burton was not in the grand jury, okay? So he, he, is, he, is, he is speculating on what was shown to the grand jury, okay? Um, so, uh, I, and again, Brenda, I cannot confirm or deny, uh, you know, just like, just like the, the video from Mr. Gugino's uh, cell phone, I can't confirm or deny whether or not the body cam video was actually shown. Um, I, um, I know that Mr. Gugino is filing um, a lawsuit, um, and so the, 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 the way the body cam video works, Brenda, is that I don't own that video, okay? The Buffalo Police Department owns that video. So the the owner of that body, or the owner of that video, they're the ones under the FOIL laws, okay, who have the right or or not, or, you know, have the have the decision to release that or not release that. So I don't know whether the Buffalo Police Department is going to release that or not, okay? Um, and again, it may hinge on the pending lawsuit that's going on. I do believe that Mr. Gugino has filed a lawsuit. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think he has. So that may determine whether or not BPD or, or the city of Buffalo actually releases that video. John, just to switch gears for a moment before our time is up, uh, it seemed like you were pretty upset when you heard that uh, uh, a candidate for Erie County Sheriff publicly listed uh, the law enforcement personnel who support her candidacy. And some of those folks work uh, as criminal investigators for the county. And you said, we don't get involved in politics. What's your, what's your feeling behind that? Why do you feel it's important to keep their names out of the campaign? Well, again, I, just so we're clear, but I, I, I had no problem with her listing um, uh, the uh, law enforcement officers who support her um, as long as they don't work in my office. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, the, the, like you said, there, there were – there were three people, you know, on that list, you know, who are current law enforcement officers who work for me in, in the district attorney's office. Okay, they are they are full time uh, criminal investigators in my office, and you know, I I, I have an office policy um, where you know um, uh, I I follow uh, the ethical rules of our New York State District Attorney Association, and those. Those ethical rules from our statewide district attorney association is that, you know, employees of my office, you know, are not allowed to endorse or support publicly any political candidates. And, and that's a policy in my office. And, you know, the, you know I, again, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, Brian, is that the, I'm, I'm not going to name the candidate. I, I didn't name the candidate the press conference. I'm not going to name it again here, okay? I mean, but, you know, that, that, that candidate who did that, okay, um, uh, that candidate knew my policy. Okay, that, that's that's what got me upset. All right, that, that I wasn't upset at the officers who's named Rama because, quite frankly, they, they really didn't they really didn't know they were going to be put on a list. Okay, um, but but the candidate, you know, they, you know, they had you know that candidate had asked other people in my office 
if they could endorse or support that candidate, and 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 they they had told her no that we the DA Flynn won't allow it to happen. Okay, so you know that that candidate knew my policy, but went ahead and put these three on anyway, and that, that that's what upset me the most because again, I, I can't have the optics out there, Brenda, that my office is political. You see, I know I got to run for re-election every four years. I get that, okay, but but but. Once that election's over, okay, then I, I turn the switch off, okay, and now it's not political at all, okay, uh, uh, until you know, the, you know, four years later, okay. So I, I really have to have to have to have a tight grip on that and a strict policy on that because, again, I don't want my office perceived as being political. I've got to ask you before we wrap, John, is it more difficult being an Erie County DA with these high-profile cases or serving as an attorney in the military as you did at one point in your life? Well, you know, that's a great question because, you know, there's a parallel there, okay? And I'll piggyback on a comment that you made as far as, you know, how you're a big supporter of law enforcement, as am I, okay? The parallel that I make is that, you know, uh, in, in my in my 20 plus years in the JAG Corps, okay, I had to participate in court martials. Uh, I had to participate in keeping people, mil- my own military members, in Leavenworth Prison. All right, I had to participate in kicking people out of the military and giving them other than honorable discharges. Okay, and you know what? I didn't like that. Okay, because I, I had to do that to my fellow comrades. Okay, my fellow military members. All right, but I had to do it. Because you, you, you have to discipline and hold accountable members of the military who cross the line, all right? And so it has to be done. And as DA, I now have to do the same thing. Even though I love my fellow, fellow military members, I love my fellow law enforcement colleagues, okay? But when a law enforcement colleague crosses a line, I have to do the same thing I did in the JAG Corps. I have to hold them accountable, so the parallel there, Brenda, is, is, is the same, okay? And, you know, it was a tough decision in the military. I, I didn't like it then. It's a tough decision now, um, and I don't like it now, but you got to do the right thing. And yeah, I did the right thing in the Navy, and I'm going to do the right thing as DA. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday morning. I'm sure we will be touching base again very soon. Okay, thanks a lot, Joe. Have a good, have a good day, guys. Thanks, you too. Thank you. Erie County District Attorney John Flynn joining us. And when we come back, Joe Farrelletto will be on the line with me and Brenda after the news here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Hardline on the Valentine's Day edition right here. Brenda Alacy with you along with Joe Beamer and uh, if you ever wanted to talk to a council member, uh, this particular gentleman represents the Delaware District. This is your, your this is your time. Call 803-0930 or text us your questions at 716-803-0930 on the Volkswagen of Orchard Park text line. And joining us indeed is Delaware District Council Member Joel Farrelletto. Good morning, Joel. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
Always good of you to join us, and uh, certainly a lot of things happening in the city, a lot to touch upon. Uh, but first and foremost, Joel, it was so chilling to see the video of that young couple walking in the Elmwood district, and all of a sudden an assailant comes up and shoots the young guy uh, in the abdomen. Uh, I, I imagine that your phone was ringing off the hook when that happened. Can you update us on what's happening with that situation? Yeah, it was uh, it was absolutely terrifying, and I, I certainly received a lot of calls and emails about it. So there was video footage. There was a couple walking down the street in Elmwood, and uh, it appears a stranger just comes out of nowhere and stabs the one guy and and just runs away. And it was just absolutely terrible. It happened around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And people were so startled because it was a random act of violence in broad daylight. And the Buffalo Police Department is currently investigating it. And I know they've had uh, different community meetings with the D-District Chief, with members of the community. The B-District Chief is having one this week just to inform residents on on what's happening in the Elmwood Village. Well, what can uh, you tell residents, uh, Joel? I mean, I've walked those streets many a time. I used to live uh, in that area years ago, and it's come such a long way now, Joel. I mean, there's so much activity. There's businesses, there's coffee shops, there's boutiques, there's convenience stores, supermarkets. It's just a, a thriving neighborhood, and to have something like this happen Uh, out of the blue, as you point out, in broad daylight, is really jarring. Uh, What can you tell folks in your district who might be concerned about going outside to walk and to shop and to, you know, live their lives in the village? Yeah, that's a a really good question. And it's Elmwood Village is very safe. This random act of violence is absolutely terrible. However, it's important um, to, to acknowledge that it's a very safe area and there's a lot of great businesses the houses in the elmwood area are absolutely beautiful they have a ton of character and it's one of the best areas to live in the city but it's important to to be vigilant and look around be aware of your surroundings and urge everyone to stay safe and if you see a crime happening or if you're a victim of a crime make sure you report it because in talking with the police they've said There's a lot of crimes, um, even going into a vehicle and stealing change or or trying to break into cars. Sometimes people don't report those. And it's very important that the police know of different these different things, even if nothing terrible happens. So they can track different trends and they can allocate more resources to those areas. Joel, uh, from a business standpoint, uh, I know you had mentioned to me uh, earlier in the week that there are businesses opening uh, in spite of the pandemic, which is really a wonderful story to tell. It's good to talk about some good news. Uh, what uh, What's happening with the business community in your district? So it's really encouraging to see in the past few months and over the next couple months between Hurdle and Elmwood, there's either have been or there will be a lot of different small businesses opening. And it's such a big variety of different types of businesses there's a a plant shop that opened some different restaurants uh, a skate shop a plant-based ice cream uh, store is going to be opening a home decor 
place on Hurdle is going to be opening, and all of these are between Hurdle and Elmwood. So it's great to see that despite the pandemic, despite the different restrictions, people are still confident in the ability to have a successful small business on Hurdle and on Elmwood. And there were some businesses that closed, but we've seen a lot of interest in, in these vacant spaces being rented out or leased out to new businesses, which is a really good sign. Joel, let me ask you, for the businesses that have reopened or, you know, have been on and off during the pandemic, have you talked to them over the last few weeks, especially the restaurants that are now able to stay open a little bit later and how their recovery is going? Yeah, I did. Actually, I was out for dinner. I had a Valentine's night dinner last night at Lombardo's restaurant, and I spoke with the owner about the additional hour, and he said the additional hour is great because it allows them to seat people later. So if someone wants to go out for dinner at 8.30 or 8.45, 9 o'clock, they don't have to worry about being rushed out the door by 10 p.m., and you can go out for dinner at 8.30. You could sit at your table for a couple hours, and then um, you could leave at, at, at that point. But at 10 o'clock, they really couldn't comfortably seat a lot of people after 8.30, or else you know, people would just feel rushed. And when you're going out to a nice dinner, you want to enjoy your time, enjoy the experience, and you don't want to sort of rush through your dinner or rush through dessert to just to get out the door. Exactly. And then on top of that, not only do you have people going back, going to restaurants, but I'm sure that they've learned another branch of their business with delivery and takeout still probably at all time highs. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. So one thing the city of Buffalo did to help restaurants during, during COVID when all these restrictions took place is if restaurants were expanding to takeout and different delivery options, uh, the restaurant was able to contact the Department of Parking and reserve the parking spots in front of restaurants. They would be coned off so people can easily access their takeout or the different delivery services could easily just pull right in front of the restaurant, get the food, and get out. And I've, I've heard from a lot of restaurants that their takeout business really increased significantly both during the time when you could not have any in-person dining, but also the times when it was, there were restrictions. Because there are, some, there are some people that don't feel comfortable sitting indoors in a restaurant, and they still want to enjoy different food from restaurants. So they're still going to support the local restaurants and get to-go food. So it's been a nice option for people to have. Joel, uh, any contact with the governor's office about uh, this kind of roller coaster ride? One week it's ten o'clock, then another week it's eleven o'clock with these closings and uh, a COVID relief. Is there anything coming down uh, from the governor's office that you know about, or do you have to sort of go through the the chain of command, if you will? Uh, do you have contact with uh, people from his office, or do you stick more so with the city and county? So I usually, I mean, I stick more with the city because those are the issues um, that we have the, that I have the most control over. Um, However, I do have regular conversations with the governor's office and I know um, he has his press conferences a couple, two or three times a week. So a lot of the information comes out during those press conferences. Um, But 
they, his office has been good with communicating with the elected officials in Western New York from the city council level, and I'm sure they're in regular communications with the state legislators as well. But they've reached out and they've asked how the businesses are doing on Hurdle, on Elmwood, and, and different things like that. So it's encouraging to hear them asking those questions and having concerns about the businesses. Well, I'd love to know your opinion, too. Uh, what a bombshell about Melissa DeRosa and what happened with uh, the governor's office underreporting the nursing home uh, deaths and the, and the situation with uh, folks from nursing homes. What's your view of that, Joel? Are, are you shocked by what happened? Yeah, so I was, I was pretty surprised when I heard that. And during, um, during the, the period starting last March when the governor was having regular press conferences, and he still is, a lot of people from both sides of the aisle have told me, and I've seen it in the news, how they really appreciate the governor sitting down and talking with the people of New York State and telling people exactly how it is and and saying that he's being open and transparent and just telling the facts. And so I think a lot of people are upset because they, they felt that Everything they were getting was completely accurate, and um, this has really certainly upset a lot of people, and I've seen a lot of state legislators on both sides of the aisle um, having different comments and concerns about this. Joel, another uh, hot topic in the city, of course, is uh, the the cameras around the school districts, and uh, we've had one of your colleagues on, Rashid Wyatt, uh, several times about this, who spoke out very uh, passionately about how he thinks it's a bad idea and it really wasn't thought through thoroughly and people are being victimized by that. Uh, you have schools in your district, in the Delaware district. Uh, what kind of response have you gotten uh, from your constituents about this uh, new procedure? So I've had, a lot of people have, have contacted my office and they're extremely frustrated with the school zone cameras. And there have been a number of issues since they first started in the middle of October that that people are concerned about. And there's a lot of things that the the company that runs this, that that owns the equipment, that issues the tickets, there were there have been many issues that have popped up from issuing tickets um, at a time that the cameras were not supposed to be on. Right when the program rolled out on October 13th, they, they sent out over 500 tickets to people before the cameras were, open, were even supposed to be turned on on October 13th. And then there was an issue. Over 20,000 people received tickets late. So the, the New York State statute says that they have to be sent out within 14 business days. And I, I know it was the last I heard the number was about 20,500 people had them sent out late and people were extremely frustrated by this because, you know, they, they open the mail and they see that they received a violation, but it was for six weeks before that. Um, so it's good that the, there, a decision was made that all of those tickets would, or all of those violations would be refunded if the person paid or they would be automatically dismissed However, um, it still really alarms people because they they get this in the mail and they're really upset about it. Uh, To that point, should the cameras have even been on while school was not in session? I I know that's another big uh, complaint. While all the students were virtually learning, there were no teachers in the buildings. 
was there was there a reason for those cameras to still be on at that time? So that's a good point. So there were five different school zones that had cameras on, and the the one thing um, the communication on it was was very challenging. And uh, for example, at Nichols school on the corner of Colvin and Amherst, there was a, there's a camera on Colvin Avenue. And at some point in, I believe it was October or November, it was, it was in the news that Nichols high school had a COVID outbreak and it was going to be closed for about for two weeks. And at the time, the, the city said that if a school is closed, the cameras will not be on. So a lot of people saw in the paper that Nichols School, Nichols High School was closed, and they assumed that the cameras weren't on. And it turns out a lot of people didn't know that Nichols has a middle school. So it also has a middle school, grades 5 through 8, and those students were in school. So the cameras actually were on and ticketing people, but there's a lot of people that travel throughout North Buffalo going down Colvin or Amherst that don't even know that Nichols has grades five through eight. So they assumed it was closed. And that's just like one example how people received a ticket when they thought that the school was closed, but technically it was open. Joel, speaking of another busy intersection, uh, Delaware and Hurdle is the site of the new Buffalo Italian Cultural Center. And uh, it's the old uh, North Park Library. It's hard to believe that it's (laughs) going to have a whole new life. Uh, how are things going with that center, and what do you think that'll mean to the community? So it's it's actually it's going great, and it's a wonderful reuse of a building that sat vacant since 2006 or 2007. So the Italian Cultural Center has done a tremendous job of fundraising and bringing life into that building, and the construction has been has been moving forward. I anticipate they'll open at some point this summer, all depending on the restrictions, but it's just so wonderful to see the investment in the art and cultural institutions and the Italian community is very thrilled that this is opening. And another thing that's, that's very important to point out less than a mile away from there, the Albright Knox is undergoing their construction, they're over, it's over a $120 million project. So within one mile of the Italian Cultural Center, you have the Albright Knox. And then if, heading east, you have the Darwin Martin House. So I think all of these art and cultural institutions so close to each other, you know, the Birchfield Pennies right there, is really going to draw a lot of people to the area once um, once. COVID's under control and people are back out going to art and cultural institutions. You know, that's interesting, Joe, because uh, I've participated in a few uh, pub crawls over the years. And now I think about how you could do an art crawl. You know, you could go to the Italian Cultural Center, the Darwin Martin House, the Albright Knox. Uh, There's so many things to do and see from an aesthetic point of view. And uh, speaking of that, what about the Hurdle Walls Project? Uh, you worked in collaboration with the Albright Knox to get that off the ground. Is that right? Yeah, I did. And it's been absolutely wonderful. So in the matter of just a few years, there have been approximately 30 different murals painted outdoors on Hurdle Avenue. 
And it's drawn so many people to the area, especially during COVID when a lot of people aren't going indoors. I've seen wedding parties take pictures outside of the different murals. I've seen different photo shoots that have been featured in different magazines. Um, so many people are drawn to these outdoor murals. There's going to be some more, some more murals done this summer. And it's great for the businesses, too, because if people are making a trip to go look at a, a bunch of the different murals, a lot of times you're going to see them stop inside a restaurant for lunch, or they're going to pass a, a retail store on Hurdle that they may not have seen before and stop in there and purchase something. So it's been great for the art community, and it's been great for the small businesses as well. I was always curious, Joe, how do you decide which building to use and do you have to put the content of whatever the mural is going to be in front of a committee so that it's not controversial or how does that all work? So a lot of it depends on the, on the, the actual building. Some buildings lend itself better for murals than others, depending on the material of the building and also how many windows are in the, are in the building. But basically we work with the, we work with the building owner and the artist and usually the artist comes up with a sketch or or some type of visual that the the building owner will look at and approve and we've actually one of the murals was designed specifically for a building um philip burke who's a well-known artist from the area did a mural of the goo goo dolls and he had the dimensions of of the building that it's on and the windows and did a custom piece specifically for that building, which was very cool to see. And I know the Goo Goo Dolls were there, and the artist was there, and it was just great to see. And their fans from all over the country go to look at that mural, which is really cool. That is uh, really a fun thing to have in the city. In fact, Philip Burke did a great caricature of Sandy Beach uh, years ago. And uh, what a talented guy, both he and Sandy, both very talented in their own right. Uh, but, Joel, as we wrap up here, I want to take it back to the beginning of the interview where we talked about crime. Um, if somebody sees something going on, if there's a concern, should they call your office? Should they call the police? Do both. What do you recommend to try to keep those streets safe for people, especially now that so many people are walking and trying to get the heck out of the house because of the pandemic? I think it's very important to call the police to make sure that they're aware of it. And then also contacting our the council office is always great because we communicate with the police, we communicate with the other council members, we talk with the block clubs in the district. Uh, but it's very important to, to contact the police. Another item, which was interesting, there was an article in the news last week talking about how car thefts are drastically up, not only in the region, but also across the country. And in that article, it said that 85% of stolen vehicles occurred when the car, when the keys were in the car. So I know it's cold in Buffalo and a lot of people want to start their cars before they go out. So it's warm, but it's really important not to have your keys in your car because we're seeing vehicles getting stolen that way. Boy, it's too bad. The cold doesn't deter the thieves, Joel. I know you're, you're <laughs> right about that. <laughs> Joel Faroletto, Delaware District Council member. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. Uh, enjoy the Valentine's Day with your fiance, and uh, we look forward to talking with you uh, in the next few weeks.
Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. Thanks. That'll put a wrap on hour one of Hardline. Much more to come, though. Mickey Kearns will join us uh, just after the 11 o'clock news with Alan Harris. And then at 1135, political strategist Vic Martucci talking impeachment right after this on News Radio 930 WBEN.